Hello, lovely. It's Shauna Lee, and welcome back to the Soul Frequency Show podcast, where we're stepping into the light and raising our frequency together. Each week, we get to return to this sacred space to have conversations about the things we all experience in life, love, health, and career. A space where we, as spiritual beings, having this human experience, can amplify our gifts and remember our truth. The title of this episode is Sacred Medicine. I really could have titled this conversation we're about to have discernment because I feel like there's this undercurrent um, to this conversation about discernment. And I can't say enough about that is on a spiritual journey, living on the planet at this time, there's so much information out there. We really have to have our own system for discerning um, what we take in. And I've always found that it's helpful to take time with something, get to know it. You know, I always say date before you marry, not just a person, but but a choice, right? And decisions that we make on a daily basis in life, like spend some time with it, simmer in the energy of it um, before we decide it's truth or before we decide it's something for us or not for us. And I really appreciated this conversation um, in this episode with Dr. Lissa Rankin because it focuses on these areas where it's so easy to... Um, to build a, a big shiny picture in our head without really looking into the details. And I think spirituality is all about looking into the details and certainly feeling into the details um, and deciding what is what for you, what is right for you and your heart and soul. And so today, uh, my guest and I had this amazing conversation. She's obviously a New York Times bestselling author of multiple books. Um, her most recent book is Sacred Medicine, A Doctor's Quest to Unravel the Mysteries of Healing. And also her book, Mind Over Medicine, is incredible as well. She's a physician, a speaker, a mystic, and founder of the Whole Health Medicine Institute and the nonprofit Heal at Last. Lissa has starred in two national public television specials. Her TEDx talks have been viewed over 4 million times, and she leads workshops both online and at retreat centers like Esalen, 1440, Omega, and Lao. And before we get into our conversation, also, um, we are going to be gathering for a sacred circle in November. If you've been listening to the last two episodes on the podcast, um, I feel like this is a beautiful time to come together to discern and to discover like, what is my truth and what is it that I want to carry forward into 2023? So we are going to have that intentionality of like, what is real and true for me? How do I discern that for myself? And then I'll be giving some information too on kind of the energy that we're moving into um, in this coming year as well. So if you're interested in joining us, you can email Michelle at thesoulfrequency.com and she will get you going. So with no further ado, please help me welcome uh, Dr. Lissa Rankin to the show. Welcome to the show, Lissa. I'm so happy to have you here. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm so excited to talk about this. There were so many things um, when I was reading your book, Sacred Medicine, that I knew I wanted to have a conversation with you about. Um, and so many things that rang true for me. And so I wanted to bring this into the community and have this chat because I think that you opened up such an important conversation in this book. And more importantly than just a conversation, the things that we think about and wonder about around healing, around health, around spirituality, you know, how it's such an important time on the planet for all these things to kind of come together. But like, really what I got out of your reading your book was like, how do we make sense of all of this together? How is this a whole, you know, vision that we can see rather than seeing 
is it this or that, right? Just this or just that. Um, and so before we dive into that, for everybody listening, if they don't know your work, I would love for you to share your journey a bit about how you came to writing this book. Gosh, it's such a long story. I, I literally wrote a, a whole book about sort of the backstory called The Anatomy of a Calling of like, how did I end up here? Um, because it's it's a very unlikely place that I've ended up. I was raised in a household with a fundamentalist Christian mother and a scientific materialist father. And so any of the places where science and spirituality overlapped were sort of banished in my childhood. You know, in my mother's worldview, those places were the work of the devil. And in my father's worldview, they were charlatanism and quackery. So, you know, I, I ended up sort of leaving the church at 18 and following my father's path and going to sort of the tra very traditional medical education route at places like Duke and Northwestern and so very academic background and I really wasn't exposed to any of the things sort of in the alternative medicine world or sort of new age spirituality or any of those things were not part of my exposure at all until I left my job in the hospital in 2007 as a result of uh a whole host of medical conditions and I was suicidal and really suffering from, you know, what Harvard physicians are now calling moral injury rather than burnout. Um, because, you know, I, as a physician who sort of felt called to medicine, the way a priest is called to the priesthood as kind of a spiritual calling, I knew there was more to healing than I could give in seven and a half minutes. And so, you know, when I started my job, I was expected to see 25 patients a day. And by the time I left, I was expected to see 40 patients a day. And just simply that, simply the amount of time uh, that I was given to see patients was creating that sense of moral injury, not to mention sort of how aware I had become of the corruption in the in, inside of the system of you know, a system that gives lip service to patient well-being, but at the end of the day is ultimately at the mercy of the financial bottom line. And, you know, modern medicine has done miraculous things for humankind. Like we have increased the life expectancy of humans by 30 years in the past hundred years because of conventional medicine. But it's also true that conventional medicine is the, was the third leading cause of death in this country. Uh, preventable medical error being the third leading cause of death as reported by the British Medical Journal until COVID. And now COVID is the third leading cause of death. So I couldn't reckon with that. I, I had a very hard time wrestling with that. And so it led me to leave my, my job. Uh, and I didn't know what else I was going to do, but I wound up at Esalen Institute shortly after leaving my job. And that was, that was the opening of a portal into a whole other world, including the world of my teacher who I've been with now for 15 years, Rachel Naomi Remen. Uh, who was uh, a Stanford Cornell physician who ended up at Esalen in the early 60s and is now in her 80s and runs kind of a spiritual sangha of doctors that I've been part of for a long time now. And so that kind of, that exposure kind of opened the door to the whole world of mind-body medicine and psychoneuroimmunology and energy healing and, you know, spirituality and and all kinds of avenues that I had not studied before. Um, and much of that study led to my, to sort of the prequel to the book that I just put out, Sacred Medicine, which was Mind Over Medicine, which came out in 2013, which I revised in 2020. And so Mind Over Medicine was originally Sacred Medicine was going to be part two of Mind Over Medicine. Mind Over Medicine was going to be everything we can prove with science, that is not necessarily part of the conversation in conventional medicine or even in the wellness world. And then part two was going to be the more subjective aspects of healing, things that are hard to objectify and therefore hard to quantify and study scientifically. And that became a bit unwieldy. And so once we sort of made the editorial decision that sacred medicine was going to be its own book and that mind over medicine would just focus on the science, um, I was like, well, if I'm going to do this, I might as well do this right. And I decided that I was going to sort of travel around the globe and work with, you know, shamans in Peru and Qigong masters from China and Hawaiian kahunas and energy healers all over the world and indigenous healers. And uh, and that led me unexpectedly to do a lot of work with cutting edge trauma therapists. And so that was sort of... <laughs> 
<laughs> how I landed here. It took 10 years of travel because I'm a mother and, um, you know, unlike Liz Gilbert, I couldn't just spend a year, you know, eating, praying and loving. <laughs> I, I had, I had to break it up. Uh, I, I basically spent a month per year um, traveling to, to study these things. And it, it was not the journey that I expected at all. I think I, I look back at how naive I was 10 years ago. Um, sort of, you know, a kid in the spiritual candy shop, sort of trotting along, thinking it was all going to be, you know, magic and miracles. And it turned out to be a tremendous, a tremendously traumatic journey. I've done a lot of therapy, just treating the trauma of actually studying this material. Um, and, you know, I, I already had sort of left one, one world of medicine when I left the hospital. And it turned out that this world of medicine was, had way more shadow than the world of conventional medicine. <laughs> and I didn't realize that going in. I sort of, I think I was like many people thinking that if you can cure cancer with your hands, you must be Jesus. And that must make you a good and moral and ethical, you know, compassionate, caring being. And that I, I came to realize that we have to divorce those those ideas. I do believe there are people who can cure cancer with their hands. And I no longer believe it says anything about their ethics or whether they're a good person. So that was part of what was really difficult was just kind of the, um, my own education about uh, the shadow of, of spirituality, the shadow of healing. And um, so there's a whole section in, in sacred medicine about that, just sort of as a cautionary tale to the, to the, those who are looking to use those kinds of medicines. Yeah, it's, and I really appreciated that because I think sometimes in the, I'm going to call it behind the scenes, like if you're in the industry, right, there are things that you see as a doctor, like in, in Western medicine and in industry that, that not everybody sees, right? Same with right. If you're any type of healer or you're in the spirituality space. There are things that sometimes you witness that you know that not everybody's seeing or everyone's in the conversation. And I think it's such an important conversation to be having at this time because there's so much more uh rise in call it spirituality or talking about consciousness or talking about frequency and vibration and all of these different things at this time and we do have this nature within us as human beings where we want to identify something as this is the bad thing therefore this is the good thing and that those are like 100% bad 100% good when it's not true right like we want right. to we want to be dualistic and we want to separate these things and we say well if this is bad then the opposite of this must be 100% good and i should believe in that and invest in that and put everything into that and and it's not that simplistic it's not true and, yeah. and I think your journey really like lays that out for people. So I'm curious, like, as when you were new and fresh 10 years ago, heading into this world, that was all going to be, I assume love and light and, and goodness and, and healing. What were some of the things that, that started to, at the very beginning where you started to go, mm, wait a second, like this doesn't feel love and light, or this is something that's off. Do you remember some of the first inklings where you saw or witnessed somebody or something that felt? Mm? I do. Yeah. I remember, well, I got, because I was writing this book, I got invited into sort of very privileged spaces to get very close, up close and personal to people that other people revered. And, you know, so I, so it didn't take long for me to realize these people are human. Um, but for example, <laughs> one of the people that was quite revered and, you know, you, everybody listening would know the, this person's name if I said their name out loud. Um, you know, I had been witnessing this person doing like one-on-one -on -one work in front of a group of hundreds of people. Um, and I, I realized that this this spiritual teacher was really gaslighting people, like really gaslighting people, like asking somebody, you know, what's your name? My name is Shauna. Are you sure? Are you sure your name is Shauna? You know, that, that level of, well, it's on my birth certificate, but how do you know that your name isn't Mary and your parents just got it wrong kind of, kind of thing, um, questioning, re questioning people's reality. 
And of course, you know, that's common in spiritual teaching is like to question our reality, to question ourselves, to, you know, be in, in spaces of inquiry, for example. Um, but I saw that same person invite up on stage a woman who had just lost her husband like two days before and was doing the most abusive things to this woman who was just grieving. She was grieving. She just needed a compassionate ear. She needed space to cry. She needed, you know, um, facilitation potentially through the grieving process. But, you know, that's really what she needed. She didn't need to have her reality questioned. Um, and that same teacher, I ended up in her home with a camera crew, um, you know, and realized that uh, I was being introduced to all of that person's alters, that in other words, this person had dissociative identity disorder. Um, like a, a, a severe, like, you know, what we used to call multiple personality disorder. And only one of them was the awakened master. And then there were all these other parts that did bad things that were coming out on camera, very excited. Um, and so that just kind of, that early experience, which was about 10 years ago, um, I was in the middle of working on a PBS special and thus the camera crew um, really made me slow down and wonder like, okay, who else who is um, allegedly enlightened actually just has a psychiatric disorder? Um, and so that was one of the early things is that I realized that um, sort of the detached, transcendent kind of um, equanimity that we might associate with some sort of enlightenment was really a dissociative symptom. Um, and so that sort of helped me in a way kind of have compassion for why this person was being so abusive to people that obviously were suffering and in pain. Um, but it also made me really skeptical. Mm -hmm. um, it kind of made me be like, okay, hold off here. I mean, I, I, I came to not believe in enlightenment. I don't believe in enlightenment. I don't believe there's such a thing as a perfect human. I don't believe any human is any better than any other human. And I came to realize it was almost like a symptom of severe narcissism to, to hold oneself as sort of special in this way and to encourage other people to try to become special like them and that sort of thing. So that, that all was really quite early. Um, and then it got even darker after that because I had I had put the name of one of the people that um, that I had studied as part of this journey on Facebook without, you know, looking back, I wish I had not named that person because it got interpreted by some people as a kind of endorsement. And then some people went and did one-on-one -on -one work with that person. And then I was getting emails from people I didn't know saying I got raped by that shaman. And I felt incredibly responsible. And it really made me aware of the responsibility of people with public profiles and platforms that if we name names, that we are in some way responsible for other people sort of thinking that that's an endorsement. So basically anybody that I named in sacred medicine is somebody that to the best of my discernment, I can recommend that they, they will do more good than harm um, but there are many people that I didn't name in the book um, specifically for that reason. So I sort of, you know, gave them generic names when I was talking about them in the shadow sections. So it's tricky because I also did not go into this intending to be like some sort of professional whistleblower, even though I had kind of, you know, I had kind of blown the whistle on conventional medicine after leaving the hospital and sort of naming, as you said, many of the things that I observed from the inside that other people might not know are happening. Um, but I wound up sort of once again in a, I, I think I thought I was going to write a much more positive book than I wound up writing. And it was sort of disappointing because I didn't really want to write the book I wound up writing. But in order to do justice to the material, because I really wanted to bring, to make a clinically relevant book for people who have tried everything in conventional medicine, and I'm not in any way against conventional medicine, I absolutely believe it saves lives some of the time. Um, and I wanted to bring clinically relevant tools that the that people in the sort of wellness world might not have tried. Things outside of the, you know, diet, nutrition, exercise, uh, supplement, herb kind of world. 
Um, and and th- and that that really was the goal of my book, and that is what I tried to deliver. Is like here are the tools that you might not have tried that might be able to get you a better outcome from your health journey um, that you might not know about. But I also felt the responsibility to sort of like buyer beware, you know, um, talk about the cautionary tales of how to keep yourself safe in a completely unregulated space. Yeah. It's really interesting. Cause like, you know, if I were to walk outside late at night and walk down an alley, right. I would have a certain preparedness about me, about who's going to also be walking down this alley. Right. And I right. would hold myself probably differently and walk differently and I'd look around me. And so when we, uh, put our sights on something is good, something is bad. And we think something is wholly good as in an entire industry or group of people. And we think it's all love and light, no matter what we put that lens, that perspective, right. And that illusion over that. And we stop looking at the individuals as individuals. And we stop looking at Like, how do I feel about this, right? Because when we give our power to somebody and say they're up on a pedestal, they're better than me, like you're talking about, like we give any human being this idea of they're better than, then we question ourselves, right? When we should be questioning them and it creates a really unhealthy environment where we don't use, you know, because people have said to me before, like in hindsight with situations with different people, like I completely believed this person. I never asked any questions. I under like against my better judgment, I did this or that without even saying a word because I just felt like if I did, I would be ostracized or I wouldn't be, you know what I mean? In a group or, you know, something would happen. Like we're, we're very like, we're, we're like a pack. Right. And we want to, we want to feel a part of other people. And so we get in groups and like, when we want to feel a part of the group, we may not necessarily speak up if something doesn't work, because you don't want to be the one to do it, you don't want to not be part of the group. I mean, there's all kinds of dynamics that run into play here. Um, But I wanted to say too, that I feel like bringing truth forward is so much of who you are, and, Mm. and your mission, and sometimes bringing truth forward is difficult, because the truth isn't always packaged in this sunshiny you know, Mm. beautiful box. And when you go out there and you do the type of research that you do, it's like, I'm going to talk about, there's always going to be a light side. There's always going to be a shadow side. And I'm going to focus on what feels most prominent in this discovery that I've been on. And, and this is why I thought your book was so powerful and why I wanted to bring it to our community and to have this conversation with you is because what I see is so much of like, you know, just putting everything into one arena, one person, one group, and and letting all blind, you know, putting blinders on, letting all like perspective just fly out the window until something happens enough to wake somebody up. And then they look back and they're like, wait, was I in a trance? Like, what was I thinking right. in this situation? And And I think more than ever at this time, we have to know who we are as individuals and we have to have our own perception and we can grow that, but we have to, we have to be able to speak up. We have to be able to see things. We have to not shine the light on something so brightly that we don't see that it's both light and shadow. Absolutely. Otherwise, I mean, that's how cults form is exactly what you're describing that, you know, and, and a part of what I recognized in working in these so intimately in these spaces is that the, the people that are attracted to these kinds of healers and spiritual teachers and such are often very vulnerable trauma survivors to begin with. So they're already vulnerable to giving their power away. They're already vulnerable to um, having somebody else exert undue influence or coercive control. Um, and so it's, it's a, it's a, it's a vulnerable population to begin with that is the sort of spiritual seeker to begin with or somebody who's chronically ill to begin with and so that that was part of what made me so angry with all of this like i was i was actually lucky i had three trips to brazil planned to go see john of god as part of this research and all three of them didn't work out for some reason or another and i in retrospect i looked at that as a kind of cosmic protection but a lot of people did not get protected so i don't even want to put it through that lens as if I'm somehow special and deserving of protection when, you know, he's in jail for life for over 600 
accusations of sexual abuse, including his own daughter. I mean, this is this is not this is not what we expect when when we are going to sort of a spiritual retreat center to see a, a healer who I, I do believe was um, part of many people's healing, uh, and I also believe he was raping women. Um, you know, who were very vulnerable to that kind of coercive control. So it's, I'm, I'm really grateful that there's so much out in the public now about um, coercive control and cult education. I really, uh, I listen religiously to Rachel Bernstein's indoctrination podcast, which if, if anybody wants to really understand the dynamic of how people like that operate and the psychology of narcissism and sociopathy and sort of cultic control figures, which is, many spiritual leaders um you know it, we we if we can learn how to spot those kinds of dynamics then we can uh we can protect ourselves better and and go in as you said with more skepticism um it was it was very obvious to me fairly quickly um that the way that i was doing my research was sort of um it set me up to have a difficult experience because i think Again, I was given such privileged access because I'm a New York Times bestselling author. I've been on PBS. I've done four TED Talks. And a lot of these people really wanted validation, I think, from a doctor with those kinds of credentials. And so, you know, I was invited into the inner circles of some of these spaces. And when I first would was going into having these experiences, I kind of was functioning like an anthropologist. You know, if you're an anthropologist, then you practice what they call bracketing, meaning you put your own beliefs and worldview aside and you kind of enter the world because maybe there are some experiences you can only have, let's say, in an indigenous village if you're fully immersed in their experience. And so I would kind of go into the experience bracketing my own sort of scientific materialist parts um, or skeptical parts, and I would just have an immersive experience, and then I would kind of come out of the immersive experience and apply critical thinking and skepticism and science. And so what I found is that when I was in the anthropologist um, part of my research, um, you know, I was love-bombed, I was um, I was treated as special. All of the healers were like, oh, you're one of us. I want to teach you how to do what I do. I was sort of... Um, yeah, I was I was made to feel quite chosen, quite quite special. And then the minute my critical thinking parts came in, and now I'm challenging the same person, um, I am shunned. Like that's it, I'm out. Um, and and that happened over and over and over and over and over again. And if somebody made it into the book with their name, it's because they were welcoming my challenge. They saw it as I'm I'm trying to learn. I'm trying to help the reader understand. I'm trying to make I'm trying to make it better. I'm trying to figure out what really works and what doesn't. What's helpful. What's harmful. And so you know that was the experience. Again, um, just because I used somebody's name in sacred medicine doesn't mean a perfect human, and it doesn't mean that I didn't observe shadow. But it meant that they were absolutely you know really devoted to the truth and really trying to figure out how to how to master their craft as best they could. Um, and, and that's really ended up what it, being what I looked for, that you know, if somebody can't tolerate being challenged, then I wouldn't trust them. And that goes for me. All, my community knows <laughs> that I welcome being challenged and it's difficult because I get called out on my, you know, my biases or my subtle racism or my subtle ableism or any way in which I'm not, you know, on completely on it with regard to um, my, all of my privileges and all of my um, unearned status and, and things like that. So I'm really grateful, but part of that is because I had such a good spiritual teacher, Part of what Rachel taught me early on, long before I ever had written a book or had any sort of public profile, was how to protect myself from ever joining a cult and how to make sure I never started one. Uh, so cult-proofing our communities, I think, one of the ways we do them is we need to be able to challenge the leadership and know that it's safe and that we're not going to be shunned and that it's that it's okay to be able to question, like, wait, I'm not so sure about that. I, that looks abusive or that looks insensitive or 
you know, it looks like you're love bombing somebody or whatever. I, you know, I think that's, that's how we can do better. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting because as you were speaking, I was thinking like, you know, with, with doctors, right? Like many times we expect a doctor to be not human, to know everything. They should be perfect. They should, you know, be the one person that's going to know everything about my body, except for they're not living in your body too. So they can't feel the sensations you're feeling in your body. Like it has to be a collaborative relationship, right? They're human, you're human. You got to talk about it. But a lot of times in our culture, they're held in a regard of like perfectionism and same with a spiritual healer or a teacher, anybody that is an influencer has a community. It's, it's a, it's a perspective where everybody's participating in it, right? If, if the, if the head of the community is participating in, nobody can challenge me, nobody can question me. And then the people in the community don't feel like they can challenge or question. It's like, everybody's participating in this kind of false reality that's really unhealthy. And I feel like to be a human being on this planet, and especially to be talking about things like higher consciousness, where this is an ever evolving in a quick, rapid pace study that so many people have different, you know, perspectives and hands in, you have to always be questioning yourself. Like you have to always reflect on what am I talking about and bringing to the table, right? And how else could this be said? And what else can I learn about this? And like, and be, and I think it's so healthy to be presenting that to a community because they should be doing that. Too. We should all be doing this, right? And we should all be starting to rely on our own, you know, our own internal guidance system and and being able to trust that and to discern with that. Yeah, absolutely. To me, what we're talking about here is really about right use of power. And we've really, it's in our faces now in the US, this whole issue of right use of power and what is abuse of power, right? Because and that's really what I, I mean, I kind of went into this. I didn't even know if, I didn't even know if I believed in sort of things like energy healing, right? I didn't even know if I thought that was real. Um, I didn't know if I believed in some of the kinds of spiritual superpowers that you might read about in like the autobiography of a yogi, where he's talking about these different, you know, yogic superpowers, the, the cities, right? I didn't know if I believed in that. I now do. I do believe in that if for what it's worth. Um, but I also believe that those powers, like any power, can be abused. And so, you know, right use of power, we're looking at it with Black Lives Matter, with, you know, cops. We're looking at it with the capital insurrection, you know, with right use of power in the government. We're looking at it in medicine, right? Right use of power. And COVID has really brought this to a head. Um, you know, we're looking at it in our spiritual communities, right? Uh, and and the Me Too movement and all of these different ways where power has been abused. And so I, I just can't, I can't reinforce enough the importance of each of us standing in our power without abusing it, right? To, you know, I, when sort of the beauty of writing this book, because like I said, it was quite traumatic, but the beauty of the sort of end result of this book for me is that it really brought me to a place where the vision of what does it mean to share power? What does it mean to be in our power without abusing it, to, to not be falsely empowered or falsely disempowered? but to actually be in power, in connection, in relationship, in community. And what does that mean? Um, and I've, I have a new ally that I'm really appreciating. Well, several, Valerie Kaur and Carrie Kelly and Resma Menachem are three of the people that I'm students of right now, really learning at the edge of my own growth about what does that mean? What does it mean to... Um, to bring marginalized and oppressed groups out of the margins and into the center where we can all be more intimate. And that's, that's I think, whenever we're in, in those power over and power under dynamics, it's a, it's, an, it's a losing dynamic. Even the winners lose. Like, even if you're in the power over and maybe you get some benefit from that, you're, you're emotionally starved, right? You're, your um, soul is, um, you're selling your soul, 
basically you're in that situation and if you're in the obviously if you're in the disempowered and abused power under role where power is being abused over you that's obviously incredibly traumatic as well um and and to me the what's lost there is intimacy is the intimacy with life the intimacy with nature the intimacy with each other like we are impoverished by that power over power under dynamic and until we as a culture can mature out of what we're in now and we may not we may exterminate ourselves as a species before we mature into sharing power but that's what wakes me up every day is the hope that not in a not in a idealistic naive utopian kind of way but as a as a potential a human potential a collective human potential that we might graduate to more of a shared power role and 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 I'm trying to practice, it's, it is so not easy. I'm trying to practice it even in my own romantic relationship. Um, and I'm in a relationship with another very powerful person. And to be able to have two powerful people sharing power it, without getting into power struggles is like a continual dance of asserting oneself, speaking for one's parts, asking for what we need, and then surrendering to what does the other person need and where are they stepping into their power and how can we negotiate these small and large things in a way where nobody's dominating and nobody's submitting. Uh, and it's, it's really not easy. I don't know many people that actually know how to do that very well. So that, I feel like that was one of the biggest gifts for me was that I sort of, I at least know how I want to be operating in, in my role in, in the world, in my career, but in my personal relationships with my daughter, um, in my community. And it is not easy, again, because so many other people have a tendency either to, to sort of reflexively dominate or to reflex, reflexively submit. So that's, that's, I don't know, maybe my next book. <laughs> I was just going to say, I hope you're writing that book because that that's a powerful book. And, and I think we're trying to, as a collective, if we zoom out, we're trying to work this out Yeah. because if you look, I, I'll never forget, I was reading a history book. It's like an eighth grade history book with my son, who was much younger and going through the history. And I had not read history since I was in school, right? I mean, I hadn't like, you know, children bring this, these things back around in your life. And we were reading this history book. My son loves history, loves all the battles and the, I mean, knows them all by heart and we're reading. And I just, I, it like dawned on me because it's going through, you know, like hundred years and another hundred years, another 500 years that we keep repeating the same thing. You know, a few people have all the power the other and land and resources, the the masses, you know what I mean, are of in servitude of those people, and it's like the locations changed and the and the clocks changed, so to speak, and the years yeah. change. But it's the same type of structure, and so in our lineage of like being human, we really don't know much other than those those power structures. And like you were saying. If you, you know, are the one that's holding the power, there's always the fear of losing the power, right? And all of the of the things and manipulations that people do to stay, you know, in that place of power, always feeling like that disempowerment's coming around the corner to bite you at any point, which is not freedom, which is not, you know, openness, no. which is not truth. You know, so it's like it creates this dynamic where it's misery kind of no matter where you sit in that in one way or another, not to say that someone's misery is worse or better than somebody else's, but none of it's freedom, none of it's joy, none of it's love or connection, like the things you were talking about. Absolutely. And and I would include in that the people in the power over role. I guarantee you these cult leaders that are winding up in jail, you know, the John of Gods, the Keith Ranieri's, these are not happy people. These are not, these people are not, um, this is not a good life to be in the power over role either. And I never want to sort of like defend the perpetrators. I have such a trauma informed lens on it. And I understand the sort of psychology of sociopathy. So I have some compassion for why people do that. Obviously I have more compassion for the people in the disempowered um, victim role in the power under 
dynamic. Um, but, but I just, but I, I always feel like I sort of have to say that, like, there's no winners in this game and everybody loses. And some people lose way more than others. I mean, I'm just the number of disempowered victims we saw suffer in such exaggerated detail during the Trump administration was just excruciating to, to witness these families torn apart at the borders and, you know, people being stripped of their rights and now Roe versus Wade being overturned. And just like, it's, it's incredibly difficult time to witness these things. If you're an empath at all, uh, to be able to actually feel the suffering on the planet right now. But like I said, I could go into a very despairing place about that. If I didn't sort of see, see the vision of what's possible, of what we're what we're missing by by living this way, and maybe maybe humans aren't designed to live the way I can vision. I mean, if you look at sort of chimpanzees, they are in a very hierarchical power over and power under dynamic, and we are you know descendants of 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 monkeys, you know, and so maybe we're just not wired to um, be kinder to each other and to. Maybe we're just wired for that kind of misery, but I, I continue, I continue to wake up feeling hopeful, um, because I mean, otherwise, I, I guess I, my activist parts would just give up, and I'm, my activist parts are very strong, so <laughs> I still wake up thinking we can do better, and the reward of what we would get would make it better, even for the people that might feel like they had to sacrifice something. And I kind of one of the one of the things that gave me that vision was working with the Caros people in in Peru, and I wrote a whole chapter about them in Sacred Medicine. And th this was my my in my lifetime the the um, the most significant experience of witnessing what power with looks like. And it's not that there isn't patriarchy in that community, and it's not that there isn't power dynamics. Um, because there is, but for example, the chief of the Caros does not get any more alpaca than anybody else in the village. His hut isn't any bigger than anybody else's hut in the village. Like he just happens to be good at chiefing um, and he gets to enjoy the sort of status and privilege of being the chief, but that doesn't entitle him to be treated special, to get extra of anything, to hoard resources. And, and so I was able to sort of at least have an imprint of like, what does it look like? And literally these people, when I was there, everybody's holding hands with each other, men with men, children with children, like adults with children, like there's so much intimacy. There's, there's so much belonging. And they were uh, a descendant of the Incas that had a prophecy that the colonizers were coming, the Spanish colonizers. And so they escaped to 15,000 feet in the Andes. So they were largely untouched by colonization and by the traumas of all of that. And they were only discovered, you know, within the past few decades by anthropologists in this sort of untouched community. And now, you know, now they're they're vulnerable to all of the westernized uh, influences at this point with you know the shamans are leaving the community and they're going into Cusco so they can lead ceremonies for white people and and all of those dynamics the oil companies are trying to seduce the chief we'll give you a truck if you let us drill your sacred mountain Waimanlipa um, so it's sad to watch that happening but it it did give me an imprint of like maybe there are humans who have done this before Maybe we, and if so, maybe we could do it again, or maybe we haven't ever done it before, but maybe we could mature, kind of graduate into a different way of being. And maybe not. I mean, it, it also, we don't seem to be doing a very good job of it lately. Yeah. And sometimes, you know, I don't, we, hindsight's always 2020 20, and we'll, we'll be, it'll be beyond our lifetimes to look back at this time, you know, with a, with a long perspective. But I also know that like, in transformation, you know, chaos is the predecessor of change. And so sometimes when things get real bad, it's because things are actually brewing under the surface. And I feel like we're at one of those times that's a pivotal point, which is why we have to tell the truth. 
Like, and everybody has different truths. I mean, there's, you know, universal truths, but there's very personal perspectives and truths. But I know that one thing about truth is that when we do something courageously, that there is a piece of us that's like, mm, I don't know. You know what I mean? I've, I witnessed this. I saw this like, oh, should I write this? But it's the truth. And this isn't the, really the book I wanted to write, but it's the yeah. book that's coming through. You know, when you're, when you're toiling with that, you're pretty much on a truth there, right? An, an inconvenient truth that is going to probably trigger some people or probably, you know what I mean? Shake people up a little bit, but those are the important conversations that I feel like actually give us the opportunity to move forward. Actually give us, we gotta shake things up a little bit to wake things up a little bit to have that change. And I feel like if there's ever a time, you know, in our history that, you know, let's even say the past hundred years, where change is possible, I feel like we're in it. And, and we're seeing a lot of the chaos because a lot of the stuff is coming to the surface, like it never had a voice before and never had the ability to. And, and it's because of courageous souls that are here, like yourself, mm -hmm. right? People who are willing to like, have a voice and, and not that they're special or privileged for having a voice, but hopefully like a ripple effect, right? When one person starts going, okay, I'm going to stand at the front of the, I'm going to stand at the front of the class and I'm going to tell the truth. Then hopefully the next person does too. And the next person does too. And hopefully we all, you know what I mean? Are standing there sharing, you know, what our personal truths are, the things that we've discovered on our journey. And I think, you know, courageous is contagious in a beautiful way. And we see someone stand up and we go, oh, maybe I can stand up too. And that's, that's a great thing. Well, and that's so much part of, you know, what I'm trying to facilitate in my work at this point is like, how do we give a voice to the voiceless? Like, how do we, how do we hear from the people that we really need to hear from? That's why I'm such a fan of, uh, of Valerie Kaur and Carrie Kelly and some of these people. I highly recommend their books, See No Strangers and American Detox. Um, we need to be listening to the voices that we just haven't been listening to, you know, and part of my own uh, awareness of this was, and part of why I wound up on the Conspirituality podcast, uh, taking a stand publicly with Rebecca Baruki against Hay House and the racism at Hay House was because I felt like I had left Hay House and I knew what was going on inside of uh, inside of those circles, um, but I had kept my mouth shut. I didn't say anything. I just laughed. And I realized it was very painful to realize that my silence was violence and that by not speaking up, maybe Rebecca Baruki, who's a white passing BIPOC woman who wound up, you know, having a significantly painful experience at Hay House, that by being silent, I was in some way complicit. I was enabling her abuse. And I, that was once again, sort of the moral injury of like, I did not do the right thing. And at the same time, it's really scary to um, be the sort of David to a Goliath, you know, and it's really frightening. Um, I was, you know, I was scared. I would destroy my career. I was scared that I would get sued. I was scared of, you know, Again, I have 35, I think I counted names that if I said them publicly, like if you guys would all know them, I have, I know things I wish I didn't know about a lot of very famous people. And I don't know what to do with that. It's literally required me to do a lot of trauma therapy with my IFS therapist about the bystander trauma, because if those things had happened to me directly, I could call the police and press charges. But these things did, fortunately for me, I wasn't, I wasn't usually the victim of these abuses. I was the bystander witnessing these abuses happening to people who um, were in proximity um, or it was hearsay. Those people came and told me their stories, but I didn't observe these abuses directly. Uh, and it's, it's tricky. We need, I'm, I'm really grateful for the whistleblowers right now because those people can call the New York times. Those people can call the lawyers and the police and press charges and hold these people to account. And I'm in a position, it's much harder when you're a bystander 
to know how to do that. So I've just been speaking off the record to a lot of journalists, <laughs> naming names, um, because that's that's the power we do have with journalists. Like journalists are what brought down Keith Raniere. They're, you know, they're what brought down Nixon. <laughs> like these are, uh, you know, we, we do have some power as the Davids of the world to bring down the Goliaths, but it does require um, all of us using our power in, in the ways in the ethical ways that we have in order to um, call out abuses of power. Yeah, and I think, you know, what I see when I look, you know, with a soft gaze across like this world at this time is that um, there's a lot of, in fact, a dear friend of mine, um, his partner uh, places like executives in, in corporations, right? Like high, Like high level placement company. And I said to him, I go, he's going to have a really busy couple of years. And I, and he was like, why? And how do you know? And I said, because I feel there's a lot of leadership across the board in every industry that is not of the highest good. It's not in the right place. The energy is not good. The, you know what I mean? It's like the old, old hat, right? Old, old way of doing things, that old power structure, hierarchy, you know, heavy hierarchy, like old boys club type of energy. Um, like very, it feels very 1950s or something. Um, and I said, it's, it's like, it's being plucked one by one. I said, the truth is rising and more will be seen. And you'll see so many people stepping down or being identified for what they're doing. Like, like again and again and again, whether it's in politics or whether we don't even hear about it, right? Like whether it's in certain corporations and, um, and and he he calls me and texts me periodically. He's like, "Oh my gosh, you have no idea. You were so right. You were so right." And and understanding that this is happening, even if you know we might hear about the very highest levels of this, but it's it's happening. And I think it's actually something that's part of this exciting time that we're in, where we're just not um, collectively more and more going to put up with things that are just not right and things that are harmful to people and and energies that are like like a vulturistic i want to call them or like like vampires right where it's just it's just come, take whatever i can from everybody grab it and run with it you know it's just very it's ugly and yeah. um and and we will see those positions like filled over time with people that just are at a different frequency they're, they're just a different energy and they they care more about the whole and they care more about, you know, bringing people together. And so, you know, I see this happening and like again and again and again. And I think that, you know, what we can do is, is hold that vision. Like you said, you know, I have this vision. I don't know if in my lifetime I will see it fully materialized, but what we can do that is important is hold that vision. And like you said, tell the truth, stand up. Yep. And there are things we can do. So again, when I say I'm hopeful, I mean, I'll just tell you what's actually, and I've never said this publicly because it's all been happening behind the scenes, but most of what I've been doing this year is preparing to launch my nonprofit work at Heal at Last. And I've been working with a team of incredibly powerful people, all of whom are happy to be sort of behind the scenes and don't need to have any sort of um, recognition and are actually just collaborating on a humanitarian goal, which is to try to bring trauma-informed medicine and, you know, spiritual healing and trauma healing to anybody who is ready for that deep dive of transformation, regardless of socioeconomic status or any marginalized or oppressed status. And right now, the, the kinds of medicines that I wrote about in sacred medicine are a luxury good. Almost all of them are cash pay. And that means that the people who need them the most don't have access to them. They're not covered by insurance. And even, you know, in this country, many people don't even have insurance. And so we are working with a team of doctors at Harvard to create a, a, a tiered approach for anybody who's ready for that sort of thing, for anybody who identifies as being in recovery from illness, injury, or trauma, um, whether it's physical illness or mental illness, to create sort of circles of healing. 
Um, because right now, I mean, I'm doing this work, but I'm doing it at places like Esalen. It costs so much money to go sit in a circle and do this work at Esalen. I just got back from doing it. I'm going to be teaching the month-long program uh, next month for burnout recovery for healthcare workers. Um, but again, these are privileged circles and it's not fair. So my social justice parts are really concerned about that. I don't want to be part of an industry that is a luxury good. And so I'm looking to sort of step down in a way from the pedestals that, that I might have been put on or from the positions of power that I may have inhabited to sort of be more behind the scenes and creating these circles of healing that we're, we're I'm working right now on the group leader training manual and the sort of student training manual based on like a 12-step like model. You know, 12-step programs are all peer-led, peer-supported. They're by donation only. You know, you used to have to be a wealthy person to go to the Betty Ford Center or whatever if you were looking to get into recovery. Um, but now there are ways that people can get into recovery if they have no money. And they're everywhere. They're at churches and jails and, you know, community centers. And that's what we're looking to try to, to scale. And it's wonderful that we have sort of buy-in from Harvard, so that that gives me hope, you know, it's like get Harvard on board, then, you know, you get a lot of mainstream buy in for the kind and the kinds of healing modalities that we're talking about are not very mainstream. And like I said, they have not many of them have not been scientifically tested very well. Um, they don't they don't really scientifically test well because the scientific method is not set up to test for subjective aspects of healing. It's only designed to test objective aspects of healing. And many of the things in sacred medicine are more in that category of the subjective aspects of healing. So, um, you know, we're, we're doing our best uh, in a team approach to try to make sure that we get the medicine to the people. And if each of us can do that in our own way, then that gives me hope. Like that is empowering, empowering the disempowered and also potentially disempowering the falsely empowered. Yeah. And I feel like if we can do that, if we can disempower the falsely empowered and empower the disempowered, then potentially we're in that place where maybe here we can share power and maybe we can, maybe we can celebrate the intimacy that is the reward of that, right? And that intimacy includes the shadow, right? right? Intimacy is not just about love and light. It's about, and, and so that's why I say I, I have to have like a compassionate lens on the, the abuse of leaders as well, because they too are acting out a trauma response. And, you know, we've all just been so incredibly traumatized. It's a traumatizing culture. Um, and like I said, the traumas are not equal, but either way, there's no winners here. So I'm, I hope that there's an, enough people willing to maybe make some sacrifices, you know, and I, I feel I personally am willing to make some, I already have made a lot of sacrifices. I've sacrificed some of my privilege and power in order to do the work that I'm doing now. For example, I've sacrificed money. I've sacrificed, um, you know, and I'm, I'm, I'm my, my, partner has an idea for a television show that's really about giving the, the voice to the voiceless. And, and I think the more we're able to do that, the more we will enjoy being human and being relational and being in community. We are, one of my TEDx talks was, was about the public health epidemic of loneliness. Like we are so lonely because of this way of living and loneliness, as I wrote about extensively in Mind Over Medicine, is a significant risk factor for chronic illness and premature death. So there are a lot of rewards um, in the body, in the mind, in the heart, in the spiritual realms for making this shift if we're able to. So will we do it? Will we evolve? Will we graduate from these immature ways of relating? I don't know, but I am motivated to continue to sort of be part of the groundswell of those who are doing what we can yeah. to make a difference. Yeah, it's so beautiful. And to close out, I wanted, you've had this long-term spiritual mentor and we've been talking about the shadow side, right? And the, the light side of this. What is what is a quick few words or sentences that you have received 
that is so beautiful. If you've been with a mentor for a long time, they they are an important person in your life. And obviously, you know, someone that you care deeply about. What have you received from her work and her contribution and her truth that's been so valuable for you? Oh my gosh. I mean, you can see her in every single thing I write. I mean, so to even to even answer that question, I dedicated sacred medicine to her. Um, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be in this line of work if it if it weren't for her. But part of part of what made her a good teacher, right? Is she never, it's like she held me when I was very traumatized straight out of the hospital with, you know, full-blown PTSD. Um, she held she held me in this safe and sacred way without fostering a dependency, without encouraging a dependency on her for that. Like the minute it was safe to kind of let me go and offer that to myself, she did, right? So it was, and the minute we hit that place that I think all, all people hit ultimately with their spiritual teachers and mentors where, um, where we bump into each other's humanity um, we went to therapy together. Like we literally went to therapy um, to work on the places where our humanity bumped into each other, right? And so we were able, and many teachers um, can't tolerate that. They can't tolerate being seen as human by their students. Um, but to have the humility of, I mean, I just thought it was so brave of both of us really to be like this relationship mattered enough to get professional support, to stay engaged. Um, and we ended up teaching together. We taught a program called Medicine for the Soul, um, you know, and, and I'm, I'm still a student in that community. Um, and it's, it's a beautiful community. It, it, it once included Vivek Murthy, who's our current Surgeon General. She is his teacher as well. So we have good people in good places and positions of power um, because of her. So, I feel really lucky. I feel really lucky. And, and I'm, I'm aware that I, um, it was an incredible privilege that I sort of stumbled upon a really good teacher when so many people have been hurt by their teachers. And I, I can honestly say, um, it's not that I haven't had my emotional ups and downs with my teacher, but I can honestly say that she has done far more good than harm in my system. I was just, I just went and saw Wicked. I'm in Boston for the summer. I just went to see Wicked. And there's that song for good um, that the the two witches from Oz are singing to each other. And the the lyrics of that just remind me of my teacher. Like, I feel like I could not be the person that I am without her. So it's, I I could go on, but yeah. So beautiful. What a gorgeous relationship. Yeah. One of the things I would encourage people to look at, she wrote an incredible essay that a piece of it is in sacred medicine called helping, fixing, and serving. And the differences between that and how helping it and fixing can hurt people and only service heals. And what are the distinctions between that? And so, you know, I, that I'd say that's another big thing that I learned. I was quite the helper and fixer in my younger <laughs> life. <laughs> me too, me too. And I didn't realize that it was really sort of a cover for controlling people, you know? Yeah, so, yeah. I went through those stages I'm a myself. Recovering controller. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a recovering perfectionist too over here. Too. Um it's funny. Too. I actually leave a mistake in everything I do. It's my it's my little fun thing. Like in every book I write, like I'll leave like the a word that's spelled wrong. Right? Yeah, it's my own little thing with myself, right? Um, to just always be like, yeah, that's the spice of life, right? It's not about getting it perfect or controlling all the dots. It's about moving with flow. So yeah, I don't even have to insert imperfections. They're just automatic. <laughs> and then I, I, look leave, <laughs> I leave them. I leave them alone. Leave them, let them be, let them have life, right? Let them breathe, breathe life. Um, my son asked me the other day, why are bad words, bad words? Like, and I'm like, such a great question. Like, why did we assign me? Why do we assign meaning to words? I mean, I could go crazy with this forever, right? I could, like my head goes to all these great places, but I'm like, why is a word that's technically spelled wrong? Is it actually wrong? Right? <laughs> like, So um, I, 
I didn't even say that to my daughter. We called them grown-up words. And we uh, told her that when she was a grown-up, she'd be old enough to have the discernment to know when it's appropriate to use a grown-up word and when it's not. I love Because <laughs> otherwise, that. I'd look like a hypocrite. You know? right. <laughs> Why does so mom true. get to say the bad words, right? Right, right. It's so true. Mom I love gets that. to say the grown-up words because she's a grown-up. <laughs> right. <laughs> I love it. It's so good. So share with everyone where they can find out. I, I love the beautiful project you're working on. How can people connect with you so they can find out more about that as you guys start to roll that out? Thank you. Yeah. Well, right now we just have sort of almost a placeholder website, healatlast.org. So I would encourage anybody who wants to be in a circle or lead a circle, or if we have any philanthropists out there that want to fund the project, um, just get on the mailing list and there's a, a, a little box you can check for which of those you might be interested in. Um, we're going to be starting doing our pilot with, so we're going to be starting training a small group of what we're calling the unicorn therapists. These are people that are cross-trained in multiple modalities of things like internal family systems or advanced integrative technology uh, therapy, or, you know, Donna Eden's energy healing or Reiki traditions or whatever, multiple different traditions. Um, and then my main website is lissarankin.com, L-I-S-S-A-R-A-N-K-I-N.com. And I post pretty regularly on my public Facebook page and less regularly on Instagram and Twitter. Um, and and this, thesacredmedicinebook.com is the website where um, people who register through there can get some extra bonuses and things like that if you buy the book and put your receipt in there. So beautiful. Thank you so much for sharing this book with us and for being here with us. It's just been an honor. It's been so fun. Oh, thank you, Shauna. I really appreciate it. It was such a stimulating conversation. We didn't even really talk about any of the tools. So I'll encourage people to actually look at the tools, but to have a framework for how I discerned them, I think is, is helpful. Yeah, I think it's a really important book to read. I really like to highlight work when it is impactful, like I feel it in my bones. Mm -hmm. And this was one that I felt in my bones. I think it's such an important conversation. The tools derived from it are, are incredibly valuable. So thank you for sitting down and writing this and for the 10 years of the adventure and the <laughs> research um, in, in becoming who you are to write this, right? And to showing up to the to the project. So again, thank you so much. Thank you, Shauna. Hey, lovely. This is Shauna Lee. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Soul Frequency Show. If you got even one piece of valuable information, head over to Apple Podcasts and share a review with your takeaways. And follow us because we got lots more goodness to come. We are spreading the love far and wide. And you know where to find me over at IG at the Soul Frequency. Until the next time, love, here's to positive vibes and powerful awakenings.